the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 50. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by a repeat guest, Orin J. Sofer, author of this month's book, Your Heart Was Made for This, Contemplative Practices for Meeting a World in Crisis with Courage, Integrity, and Love. Orin is a teacher of Buddhist meditation and communication. As I said earlier, he was previously on the podcast with his awesome previous book, Say What You Mean, which is about mindful communication techniques. And if you're interested in that, you can find that on episode 23 of the podcast. So welcome back, Warren. Thanks, Josh. Happy to be here. So just to to start easy, I'm curious about what some of these woodworking projects are that are mentioned in the jacket of the book. <laughs> what, what are you whittling over there? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's a fun way for me to just be in my body and uh, build things. So, you know, a couple of redwood garden boxes, uh, the odd shelf here and there, uh, currently working on um, another uh, redwood cover for uh, some gas meters outside our house that are kind of unsightly, <laughs> just looking to make them a little prettier. Nice. So is that sanding and Yeah, it's basic stuff. Or... Yeah, cutting, sanding, screwing, gluing, or clamping, kind of just, just basic stuff. Uh-huh. Great. Well, that's yeah. awesome. So why write this book? Uh, I know the answer is in the book itself, but I <laughs> want to hear from the horse's mouth. Sure. You know, what's interesting, Josh, is that it started in one place and it, it ended up in a different place, um, just uh, the way my life unfolded. So, um, and then, so all of the reasons are kind of embedded into the book. So it started, I started writing the book in 2020. Uh, after the pandemic hit and then George Floyd was murdered. And then out here in the West, we had this terrible season of wildfires. Um, and for a lot of people, you know, things felt overwhelming. It felt like the world was falling apart. And so I started writing about some of the positive qualities and traits that we could draw on in these really challenging times. And that was the impetus and inspiration for the book was how do we use not just our meditation, but just our time every day to grow stronger inside so that we can face the challenges that are unfolding all around us. And then about a year later, my wife and I got pregnant uh, as I was still working on the book. And that kind of shifted things for me in terms of my perspective. I started looking a lot further ahead, uh, you know, further than just my lifetime to the lifetime of our child and future generations, and really starting to grapple with a very deep personal question of how does this path, um, this Buddhist path, this contemplative path that I've been on for the last 25 years, how does it apply in a broader sense to the challenges, not just that we're facing, but that our children are going to face? And can it be a lever for being more effective in our lives and helping to work for positive change, for a better world, for our children? And so in that sense, the book became a very deep kind of exploration for me, grappling with this question of how does our inner life relate to the challenges and the need for 
um, really profound shifts in our communities and our society. So those are those are the inspirations for the book. And then um, there's this kind of side benefit. So the, the book goes through, as, as you know, all of these different positive qualities or traits that we can cultivate every day that uh, will help us in our lives in all these different ways. And it, it kind of also provides like the underlying foundation for my first book. Uh, you know, mindfulness is really essential and helpful to communicate, but it turns out that um, you also need patience and courage and empathy and compassion and integrity and energy. <laughs> so uh, it also provides a kind of more thorough and robust training for being really effective in our communication by providing a deeper skill set in in that regard as well. So that's that's the long-winded answer, all the different things that went into writing the book, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, since reading that book and doing some practice on my own and in my community, I, I have this uh, NVC partner I now communicate with on Monday afternoons. And that's great. We've, yeah, it is great. It's wonderful. We've been able to work out a lot of uh, conversations sort of in, in the sandbox before we bring them out into the, into reality. But yeah, one thing that is continually being highlighted by us is just how important mindfulness is uh, yeah. to make some of those practices available at the time that you need them. Yeah. That's great. That makes me really happy to hear. Yeah, for sure. And I have, I also, I did like, I don't know how much you do an inside dialogue, but a guy came to DC recently mm-hmm, to do a, mm-hmm. a two day inside dialogue retreat. And, uh, mm-hmm. I was really taken by that and yeah, yeah, it's really powerful stuff. It is. It's a wonderful, wonderful meditative practice. It really en- enhances our ability to, to be mindful in the relational space with another person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it also really sharpens concentration at like quite an accelerated clip um Mm -hmm. compared to you know my own just sit that might be you know 90 percent rumination i feel like having that other person staring at you as you name out loud your experience can really um keep you on track in a way definitely so back to the book (laughs) yeah Uh, (laughs) so uh you write about the external expression of the dharma um, which I think I know what that means, and it's it's not something I've mm. paid too much attention to, but I feel like the world is really paying attention to that mm. kind of uh, that kind of idea. So, what what is the external expression of the Dharma, and and how does that compare to a more solitary practice? Yeah. Well, thanks. That's a beautiful question. Um, yeah. So, it's safe to assume that folks listening have a context or definition for that word, or should I just give a brief? Uh, you know, definition for Dharma? Um, Yeah, I'd say a brief one would be probably useful, yeah. Sure, sure. So uh, I think in the the context we're using it, it it refers to um, our practice of inner liberation teachings. So specifically refers to the Buddha's teachings, uh, this word Dharma, how, how do we get how do we get free? How do we free our hearts and our minds from the confusion and habits and entanglements that get us stuck uh, unnecessarily? And the sort of broader meaning of the word is uh, just the natural laws of the universe, just the way things are. 
And so the idea is the more we understand that clearly and can live from an embodied awareness and understanding of the the truth of this existence, uh, the less unnecessary suffering and friction we create for ourselves and others. And so what is the external expression of these truths uh, and our understanding and embodiment and practice of them? So I look at this question in a couple of different ways. For me, it's always been very clear that the purpose of any inner cultivation, any kind of spiritual or contemplative practice, any sort of wellness program, um, the, the ultimate aim is to transform how we live in the world. And that the inner benefits that we get, the calm, stress relief, clarity, insight, uh, more freedom, inside, you know, that those are ends in and of themselves. They're um, beautiful, nourishing, precious um, touchstones for us in our lives. But if we're not able to live it, you know, if we can't actually change how we are living, how what how we relate when we're stuck in traffic <laughs> and late for a meeting, you know, how we respond when that coworker doesn't reply to our email in the time frame we were hoping, or that family member does that thing around the holidays that drives us nuts that we've asked them to change. You know, if we if we can't bring some shift to bear in these real life situations, um then it's just a nice escape. So to me, this is one way we can think about the external expression of our our own practice and cultivation of the Dharma is, does it change how we're living, right? And not to be idealistic, right? All of us you know, are in a learning process. So it's not that we hit the mark all the time, but are we able to move in the direction of our values and our vision? Are we able to recollect that there, we even have a choice in how we think about and relate and respond to these difficulties? This is one level, is just making it real in our lives when things get hard and we're pushed to our edges. I think on the broader level, this question of what's the external expression is, um, how how awake and effective are we as members of the global community you know we we have all been kind of infected with this mm, it's not just a belief it's this actual like felt experience that we are separate individuals which is just blatantly not true <laughs> on a purely biological and physical level, um, but it's also very much not true in, in all of these other, you know, levels like economically, environmentally, politically. We're all connected and influencing each other. So the external expression of the Dharma, of our our deep values and our practice, our way of being, also to me means that um, we are becoming more and more conscious 
um, engaged and effective citizens and community members at any scale, whether that means in our family, in our neighborhood, in our community, um, or on larger levels politically. Does that make sense to you? Or Yeah, it does. And um, it sort of reflects what I feel like you've written about and others have written about how the Dharma is, you know, not just this personal quest, but it is a, a method for achieving your goals out in the world and including yeah. like goals around activism or conservation or. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it, it positions us to do that more effectively, right? Because it, it kind of shifts the underlying basis from which we're acting and allows us to access uh, all these amazing resources that we have inside to build those resources, to access them and to deploy them more, more effectively, which is really getting, you know, back to the book. It's like, it, I see this book as a sort of handbook, a practical map for how do we build that inner toolkit to make it real in our lives, you know? So we, you and I were just chatting before we started. I've got a 14-month-old, and there's always something new as he's growing and changing that's, you know, challenging me and pushing, <laughs> pushing me to my edges, um, you know? And so... Now it's the screaming and resisting, wanting to change the diaper. <laughs> and as you know, where do I find the patience? How do, how do I resource myself in those moments so that I'm relating to this little being um, in a way that's kind and loving and patient and embodying the kind of experience I want him to have of other human beings in the world as in these formative, formative moments? You know, how do I stay connected to some sense of sanity and hope as, you know, war explodes around the world in all these different places? These are the kinds of questions I'm grappling with in the book and saying how we pay attention and how we live every day um, can actually be in service of building a stronger heart and being more resilient and adaptable for these challenges from the daily diaper change <laughs> to like, you know, the international political conflicts that uh, are so far away that we feel so helpless about sometimes. Mm-hmm. Not so far away for everyone, I should say. Yeah. So I want to talk about renunciation, which is mm. chapter nine of the book. Mm. And I feel like renunciation hits different people in different ways. Uh, a friend of mine right now is working very hard to get a six pack. Um, and I think for her, it's not such, it's not so hard, um, you know, giving up some of these creature comforts that would mm. otherwise get in the way of her abdominal development. Um, for people like me, when I hear renunciation, I, I run for the hills because it feels like some vehicle for self-punishment or um, just you kind are of... not alone. Right, <laughs> right. But it sounds like, and since it's made an appearance in this book, there is a skill of renunciation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might just read a couple paragraphs from page 102 here, unless you have it handy, in which case you could. But I want to refresh your memory and also help catalyze the conversation around this. I, I do have the book handy. Um, but uh, yeah, if you want to tell me where to start, I'd be happy to, to read it. I was thinking the first two paragraphs on page 102. Yeah, no doubt. To be clear, we can never fulfill craving, but we can release it. This takes practice. It requires the skill of renunciation. To study craving, 
we must be able to stand in the flood of sense desire, feel its pressure, and resist the urgency to act on it. If we suppress desire, we often act it out, as I did with sweets. But when we steady ourselves, bear with the discomfort of craving without trying to gratify it, we see that craving passes. Like everything else in this world, it too comes and goes like a cloud. To practice renunciation intelligently, we need resilience and proper support. I needed to feel my sadness, anger, and disappointment, which in part required help from others, before I could find a balanced relationship with sweets and my digestive condition. Only then could my renunciation arise from love and care for my body rather than suppression of craving. Mm. So just to back up, it seems like maybe there's two things here. One is what the value might be of renunciating, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. renunciating something uh, just in general, like in, in your case, maybe it was for your physical health. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, just to elaborate more on, on this skill and to hopefully reframe it as you've done in the book is not like one more thing we have to do in order to be worthy, um, yeah. but yeah. something that brings us something richer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I chose the word renunciation intentionally to provoke <laughs> a little bit of a response um, because it, it does challenge us to question uh, our assumptions and and I think sort of wake us up a little bit out of the the spell or the trance of consumption and craving and all of the mythology that goes along with that in modern Western capitalist society that who, who, who I am, how successful I am, how much worth I have is defined not by the content of my character, as Dr. King said, but, but by how much I can accumulate how many resources I have access to, or you know, things like my appearance. To, to reference your friend, uh, you know, how attractive or fit or healthy or young I, I am. So, renunciation is not about depriving ourselves or trying to you know attain this moral high ground of sort of I'm better than you because I can so and so forth. Um, it's actually about discovering our own inner richness and fulfillment. So when we see renunciation, the skill of letting go from the perspective of craving, from the unquestioned worldview that happiness comes from getting, having, being, or becoming more, it looks like uh a shocker in the sense of, uh, I'm going to be without. What will I be without? What will I have to give up that I can't have? But when we look at it from the other side, it's fulfillment. It's it's what we discover in, in renunciation is actually what we already have inside, which is a sense of wholeness, uh, a kind of um, capacity for real contentment that so often just gets blown past and overlooked by the sheer force of craving. So one of the simplest ways that I find to get across what I'm talking about and what 
really, I think the Buddhist tradition and the Buddhist value for renunciation is getting at is with some of the synonyms that I introduce early in the chapter. So if we replace that word renunciation with something like simplicity, that gives us one flavor, right? Simplicity is like, well, what is that? How does that feel? You know, something inside me relaxes. It's like, oh God, that's nice. It's like not so complicated, not so hectic, you know? Uh, and then another synonym is non-addiction. What would it be like to not be addicted to our, our devices, to work, to pleasure, to self-improvement, to becoming that, you know, amazing, likable, funny, charming, sweet, kind, compassionate person that I, you know, think everyone wants me to be. Ah, oh, non-addiction, not having to chase after that. So renunciation actually opens up this uh, space in the present by understanding the force of craving and allowing it to move through us and something else is revealed. So I could go on to say more about the skill of craving, how we how we strengthen this capacity, but I, I've said quite a bit, so I kind of want to just pause there and see how that's landing with you and what it's bringing up. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think for me, the way that I, uh, the way it lands for me in a way that um, reminds me of previous experiences is just like being on a meditation retreat. Uh, you know, retreats don't have much of what we have in our normal lives. And because of that, there can be some feelings and thoughts that arise that are hard when you're not with all your favorite things. And I think for me, being able to come to my own rescue, so to speak, during those periods of, uh, you know, crankiness um, mm. is a way for me to discover an inner contentment um, as, mm -hmm. I, as I learn to reparent myself and heal myself, mm -hmm. you know, from the inside. So I think, I think it lands for me um, in that way. That's, that's what it brings to mind. Nice, nice, yeah. Yeah, the practice and certainly the practice of retreat kind of brings us face to face with um, those challenges and some of those those cravings inside for stimulation or comfort and a uh, new possibility opens up, right? Of recognizing the, the value and the strength of things like presence, kindness, patience, um, yeah, for me, and I think I talk about this in the chapter some, it's like, <clears throat> I reflect a, a little bit on, you know, what, what are some of the times in my life that I, I've been the happiest? And when I look back, oftentimes it's not, it had nothing to do with what I had. In fact, it was often the absence of certain things, you know, I think about uh, times in my 20s when I was just living out of a backpack and traveling around and this, this sense of freedom and possibility that I experienced having that privilege um, or times with other people, you know, times living in community and the richness and closeness of the relationships and the joy of being surrounded by uh, people who uh, I appreciated and how nourishing that was. 
um, not coming from accumulating anything or even trying to become something. And then the the story I tell in the chapter about, you know, having this chronic digestive condition and then needing to change my diet and the kind of very classic, you know, yo-yoing of, of sort of clamping down, I'm not going to have any, and, and then uh, that backfiring and sort of this you know, gorging myself on sweets, which is really very, very bad, was very, very bad for my body and sort of finding a different relationship with how to let go um, of something. So to the, the skill of renunciation to develop it, um, I want to go back actually to one thing you said at the beginning, because it, it just struck me where, you know, you talked about <laughs> Not, not feeling really enthusiastic or excited when you you see the word or hear it and the the pat well, was a passage in the Pali Canon where the Buddha talks about his own relationship with renunciation and he uses this phrase my heart did not leap up <laughs> at the thought of renunciation before I was enlightened and so, you're in good company <laughs> as we mm. all are right when we when we think about this think about it as um deprivation as a very natural response so i think we can start to appreciate it <clears throat> just by beginning to examine what is the experience of wanting i think you had sharon on on your show recently and the two of you were talking about this too you know how to turn the attention towards the actual experience of wanting something instead of focusing on the thing that we want and to feel the discomfort of it, the tension of it, and then to notice what it's like when that craving ceases. And sometimes it ceases because we get the thing. You know, it's like you you buy the product or you get the coffee or you eat the cookie, whatever it is. But instead of just focusing on the pleasure of the, the object, notice Notice the disappearance of the tension of craving. Or if you don't follow it and you just let it pass, eventually it's like, oh, I'm not in the grip of that tension of wanting something I don't have. Because craving is always about something we don't have. And it's always important to say here, there are healthy desires, right? It's not that you know wanting anything is somehow uh, not helpful for us. It's really healthy to... Um, want to improve our community, to want to contribute to others, to want to learn a craft or a skill, um, to want to meditate and free ourselves. These are all very healthy desires, but they even those can become infected by this particular quality of a, a kind of contraction in the heart where it's like, I'm not okay in the present and I won't be until I get there to that thing. So we start to study that that process of craving and understand it, we start to realize that there's another alternative to, to the options that only seem to present themselves at first, which is either I do it, I follow it, I get the thing, or I kind of suppress it, I, I resist it, I push it down. And neither of those actually in the long run leads to any kind of learning or transformation in the heart. Whereas if we start to actually observe the experience of wanting something, whether we follow it or not, then we learn from it. We actually grow in our capacity to have a relationship 
to craving, which then opens up this possibility of um, developing the muscle in the heart that lets go, which is what this whole path is about. It's about learning how to relinquish or release the places that we get stuck and grab onto things. And that's not, it's not a releasing of our values or what we care about. It's not a giving up. Um, it's a releasing of the way we tend to argue with or, or be in conflict with reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that there is that third possibilities. I feel like our mm-hmm. culture is so cluttered with either, um, you know, getting as much as you want of a thing or denying yourself with willpower and bravado mm-hmm. and harsh words and mm-hmm. I don't know, machismo. Yeah. So w- when we think about this in terms of that question we started with of like the external expression of the Dharma, um, this becomes really relevant in in any kind of um, any kind of project or you know, meaningful work where the renunciation aspect, the letting go, um, is to trying to control the outcome. It's it's the recognition that it's not up to me. You know where where this is going to go. Um, so you know whether you're if we're going to take sort of a political example of you're sort of working to organize some piece of legislation and get it passed, or you know if you're working with other parents and community members on some um, climate action in your own community. Uh, Recognizing like I can work wholeheartedly. I can really give myself to this and put a lot of energy and time. Um, And the renunciation aspect is not that I don't care about the result, but it's that sense of um, relinquishing the contraction around it has to be this way because that that quality of contraction that quality of um, fixating on the outcome that saps our energy it leads to less flexibility along the way if different obstacles come up and ultimately it can it can burn us out or dash you know dash our uh, commitment so it's not that we don't care about the outcome. Of course, we want the outcome. We're working towards it, but we release that to the larger, um, larger forces that are at play. And the so the renunciation there is the skill of giving ourselves wholeheartedly to something um, while still being free inside and recognizing that we can do the work that we do because we believe in its goodness. Uh, because we feel a certain obligation morally or kind of calling to do it, um, that we don't have to carry the burden of needing to make it work because we recognize that ultimately, in the end, that's not up to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of thinking about this idea of like equanimity mm-hmm. and renunciating the outcomes mm-hmm. of things. And then I'm thinking about like children Mm-hmm. who when they're about to go do their favorite thing they're so enthusiastic mm-hmm. um and i and i think they're probably not thinking like oh i can't wait to go to the playground 
but if the playground is gone, that will also be okay. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm just sort of wondering if by fully internalizing this commitment to seeing the world or reality as it actually is, mm-hmm. does it damper any of that kind of enthusiasm that uh, you might have had if you weren't so mm-hmm. um, neatly mapped on to how complex things are and mm-hmm. how often things are outside of our control? Yeah, I don't think so. Um I think that the so equanimity and renouncing the, the goal, the, the outcome we want, a certain situation. Um, these don't mean that we can't feel joyful and enthusiastic, and it also doesn't mean we can't feel sad <laughs> or grieve. You know, when the uh, the wished for outcome doesn't occur. Right. It's like, you know, the legislation doesn't get passed, the candidate doesn't get elected, or um, the playground is closed. It's sad. There's, there's, you know, there's a loss there, which is also a very natural experience. Um, the, the question is, you know, does it break us? Like, are we harmed by it? You know, and, and I think the example of a child is a really good one because. <clears throat> on the one hand, their their enthusiasm is so complete and wholehearted; it's beautiful. Um, and then it's like if the playground is closed, right? For the child, that's devastating, perhaps in the moment. And so, in that moment of devastation, there's something I think we can learn. There's something beautiful, and then there's also something the child has to learn. So, I think what we can learn from the child is this the wholeheartedness of their grieving. They're, you know, If the child's young enough, there's no holding back. There's no sense of, I shouldn't feel sad about this. What will people think of me? This is silly. You know, It's just like the child wails. This is awful. This is terrible. <laughs> you know, I so wanted to play and now I can't. And there's a beauty in the, the authenticity and the fullness of that expression. And you know what? When it's over, it's done. And then they're free and they're present again. So there's yeah. something I think very powerful in that authenticity and the wholeheartedness and the lack of um, interference or resistance to the natural flow of their emotions that is a certain kind of um, innate alignment with the Dharma because they are in a flow with the unfolding of their experience. They're not resisting it or interfering with it. But of course, as you and I both know, it's not the end of the world that the playground is closed. It'll probably be open again in another day or two, right? So the child also has something to learn, and that's the lack of equanimity. That this, this, they don't have the balance that comes from perspective. They don't have the perspective because they haven't lived long enough to know, yeah, it's a bummer, it's all right. <laughs> it's not the end of the world. So that the equanimity piece comes from the lived experience and the the perspective of wisdom of knowing the way things are. And so that, that doesn't mean we don't feel disappointed, but we aren't broken by it. We aren't so consumed by it. We have the we have the perspective. One of the things that one of my teachers 
uh, Michelle McDonald, insight meditation teacher, likes to say sometimes, and I, I really appreciate this. She says that one of the goals of our practice is to marry the wisdom of the elder with the innocence and the freshness of the child. And it's like there's something to learn from both, from both sides of the spectrum. You know, the, the wisdom of lived experience is, is real and is valuable. And the certain kind of wisdom of beginner's mind and openness and innocence of the child, you know, how, how do we bring the two of those together and have the best of both worlds without losing, losing either. Mm. Yeah. I was thinking beginner's mind, as you said, that it's kind of beginner's mind with an asterisk on it mm-hmm. to like be able to see the flowers and the trees, like someone who'd never seen them before, but to also mm-hmm. have the lived experience for when the tree or the flower is, you know, burnt or thrown away to know yeah. that, you know, it's not all over. Yeah. So um, I was kind of touched by this section of the book. Uh, I think it was the kindness section mm. about, because, you know, it's hard to be kind sometimes for some of us when we're having a hard time. And on Absolutely. page 115, um, yeah, maybe I'll just have you read that first paragraph uh, under if you have difficulties on page 115. Yeah. If you're feeling down or having a hard day, kindness can feel far away. Remember that loving kindness allows things to be just as they are, meeting life on its own terms. You don't have to change how you're feeling, pretend or be chipper to be kind. True kindness can be as simple as wishing someone a happy birthday or meaning it when we say, drive safely. Listen for the genuine care in your heart, trusting it's there even if you can't feel it all the time. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. so important to not think that we have to paper over how we're feeling or, you know, put on a happy face if it's not what's real to be kind. Yeah, and, and I think just this things like drive safely or or be safe, which comes out almost automatically. It's just like a way of saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find kindness in something as sort of rote and simple as that if you kind of just mm-hmm. feel into a little bit the meaning. Yeah the meaning underneath it. And and I think this idea of trusting that something's there, even if you can't feel it, that really resonates with me mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, having gone on several retreats or having moments in my life where I've touched peace before, I like mm-hmm. to think that there's now a kind of high watermark somewhere mm-hmm. inside me so that even in hard, anxious, difficult times, I just know from past experience that peace will return. Because yeah. I don't know, it always will, it always does. And just knowing that that is accessible, even if it's not remotely accessible in the moment, just having yeah. that kind of faith um, yeah. is, is helpful. I love that image, Josh, the high watermark. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I, I sometimes also think about it as, as two things come to mind. One is, you know, when we're in those difficult places where, whether it's the peace or the kindness or just even the sense of like clarity or perspective, you know, we can get so confused as human beings and just feel so turned around and overwhelmed sometimes. Um, 
oftentimes it's like the first step that I find the most helpful is like, can I just be kind and gentle with myself right now? You know, it's like to just turn it inwards and just whatever it is, whatever is happening, wherever I'm at, however confusing and hard or overwhelming or turned around, I feel like, can I just meet this moment with the, the smallest amount of friendliness, of, of gentleness or acceptance? You know, that's, that's kind of like the, the, the chink in the fence that sort of starts to open things up if we can, if we can get there. Another way I like to think about um, our practice, and you mentioned, you know, being on retreat or touching a sense of peace or, or kindness, is, uh, and, and what I've seen in myself is that we were talking earlier about, you know, equanimity and this alignment with the way things are, and um, it's like one of those famous images that can be seen in two ways. And perhaps the most famous one is the the drawing of the the old woman, and then you look at it another way, and it's a it's a young woman whose head is turned, and you just see the outline of her neck. You know that one? Yeah, yeah. It's like I feel like our practice is teaching us to do that. So we see the world and ourselves in one way, in this kind of habitual way, through the through the lens of self, through the lens of permanence. Everything's you know stable and steady and and we see the lens of the world through um the attractiveness of things that there's something here that's going to fulfill me and make me happy and i can get it and have it this is the delusion of the mind and that the more we practice the more familiar we get with this other way of seeing of perceiving of knowing the world we see its changing nature its instability. We see um, the incompleteness of things, you know, the dukkha, the um, the inability of things to really deeply and completely scratch the itch. <laughs> and we see the... Um, the impersonal nature, the ungovernable nature, it's not in our control, it's not personal, it's not it's not me, it's not mine, any of it. And it's not that those aren't ideas. They're they're a way of experiencing, a way of seeing. And that that includes and evokes a, a kindness and balance and spaciousness when we recollect that way of seeing. And so our practice familiarizes ourselves with that so that it becomes more and more accessible. We can see the picture in either way. We can relate to what's happening in either way. And it's not that one's, you know, different, better or worse than the other, because the the sort of relative world of time and schedules and people and accomplishments is really necessary to function in. But we have another way of being and another way of understanding the more we practice that provides a kind of uh, ballast inside and a certain freedom and spaciousness. The more we practice, the more we can access that. So that high watermark can turn into um, not just a memory, but something we can actually touch in moments, even if it's just like an echo of it. Yeah. Yeah, I see practices 
especially like formal practices, making it more likely that in moments these options are available to you to see things as they are, to act kindly or generously. Mm. Um, especially I've recently become quite taken with the idea that free will doesn't exist. Um, and so hmm. this kind of mental training really helps to like make clear when, you know, when people do things that are bad or quote unquote bad, when they hurt each other, hmm. it seems clear to me that in that moment when they, you know, quote, quote unquote, chose to hurt someone, the second option of like not hurting that person just wasn't available. Mm-hmm. At least I believe that if that option was available, they would have taken it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so through practice, you know, and training our mind in ways of compassion and presence, you just mm-hmm. give yourself more options in those moments right. when you, yeah. you maybe might be able to choose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the way that gets talked about in the Dharma is less through this idea of the lack of free will, which would mean that if there if there were no free will, we wouldn't be able to practice. We would just be stuck. <laughs> um, but th- is through dependent co-arising, right? Which is through this idea that everything is conditioned. And what you're just describing there is like this this insight, this understanding that, oh, the conditions weren't present, right? The conditions weren't present for that choice to be available. And so our work is to how do we cultivate the conditions for there to be a real access to making different choices that lead to our own well-being, the well-being of others, and a sense of uh, of peace and deep fulfillment inside. And so that's you know it's really the um, sort of under underpinning of of this the whole path and 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 my book is a sense of how do we how do we position ourselves and use our time every day in the very ordinary things we're doing cooking meals, doing laundry, commuting to work, having conversations, how do we position ourselves so that we're using the stuff of our life to create the conditions inside for actualizing and fulfilling our potential, for building this tremendous wealth of resources inside that we have access to as human beings. There's so much potential to um, this really profound resilience inside, but we have to know how to use our time well. We have to know how to use not just the good times, but the really hard times and the challenges and the boring times um, as fuel for awakening and cultivation. And then a lot, a lot of new, a lot of doors open up. You know, I, I talk in towards the beginning of the book about um, some of my other struggles with uh, Lyme disease, and how you know I was able to draw on qualities like aspiration, of like, oh, look, what can I do just to take care of myself right now, instead of wallowing in the misery of not feeling well or believing I knew what was going to happen in the future. Um, being mindful of the difference between all the fantasies my mind was making up about the future and how I'd never feel well again and just what was happening in the moment. 
And those those skills that I had already developed through practice meant that as I went through what turned out to be a period of three years of being fairly ill, I learned a tremendous amount. I, I really deepened in patience, in compassion, um, in courage, and resolve uh, through the illness. It became, in some sense, a really great teacher for me because I knew how to use it, because I knew how to... Um, relate to it in a way that strengthened my heart. And of course, that doesn't mean that it wasn't hard and that I didn't struggle and that there weren't times where I felt really miserable and lost or lonely, like that's part of it. Um, we were able to, to fold all of that in uh, when we have access to some of these, some of these practices. Yeah, for sure. And it reminds me of uh, the conversation I had with Sharon where she was quoting someone who said, uh, these things are givens, not gifts, lest there be another obligation to make every horrible thing in our life some kind of uh, project for mm. for awakening. Yeah. 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 So um, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but yeah. I'm intrigued about the chapter on devotion. Mm. Um, well, there was a couple favorites. of things. Yeah, there's a couple of things in there I didn't expect to learn that I was, I was quite interested in. Um, oh, cool. There's two things in particular, but one is, is more just about kind of a historical upbringing. Would you read, would you read the first paragraph on page 222, the first full paragraph underneath the page yeah. break? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, so the, the first full paragraph of the page or the section after the section break? Yes, exactly, after the section break. Okay, sure. Like many secular Jews whose history of persecution and pressure to assimilate have led to an overemphasis on rationality, I used to bristle at what I stereotyped as devotion. For me, the word conjured images of irrational behavior and blind faith. When I was a child, images of people praying to Jesus or the Virgin Mary seemed like idolatry to my narrow sensibilities. Since then, I've come to understand devotion entirely differently. Notice your own associations with the following words, each of which expresses a different aspect of devotion. Sincerity. Reverence. Respect wholeheartedness, enthusiasm, love. Devotion can be sensible and grounded, and yet it can open us to the mysteries of faith. And maybe I'll have you continue. I don't know if this is annoying for me to direct sure. you to read. <laughs> no, points, no. But on the next it's, page, uh, uh, the first paragraph, it took a long time. Maybe that oh, paragraph sure. as well. Yeah, yeah. It took a long time for me to appreciate the value and beauty of Buddhist devotional practices like bowing, chanting, and offering incense. Learning more about their historical context gave me a new perspective on these practices. The Buddha radically challenged traditional views that holiness was about one's birth, one's caste, and that spiritual purity or attainment could be found through rituals like bathing in the Ganges. He asserted that true righteousness lies in the heart and that the primary value of ritual 
is symbolic. In ritual, intention matters more than action. Thus, to offer incense to a Buddha statue is to offer gratitude for the Buddha's teachings and respect for our own capacity for awakening. Yeah, so there's a lot in here that I really um, responded to. First of all, yeah, some of the historical stuff you write about, because I've also been raised in the same sort mm -hmm. of tradition of secular uh, Jewishness. This uh, history of persecution and pressure to assimilate have led to an overemphasis on rationality. I'm really curious about that. Um, I don't know if there's any books you can recommend or um, mm. so that's just something you've noticed in your own family or in, or in your own community. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it's, it's a combination of things. I'd have to think a little bit more carefully about books to recommend, but you know, I, I think what I'm naming there is this kind of, I mean, the Jewish tradition in general, in particular, in the, since the Holocaust is, has a very strong um, emphasis on intellect and rationality, but you know it goes 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 way back even to the to the rabbinic period where you know study right is a kind of core to the tradition. There's a, a very high value for the intellect and rationality and study as as a, a means of practice. So I think you you combine that with the um, the history of diaspora. Judaism after the Holocaust and the sort of, you know, wanting to assimilate as out of a sense of sort of safety and protection with um, the dominant values of a patriarchal society where like, you know, since the age of the enlightenment, the rational rationality and the intellect gets given the sort of prime place of, of knowing over other forms of knowing, like intuition, feeling, embodiment, um, psychic knowing, and so forth, um, those all kind of come together to you know. For many of the Jewish friends I I have, who you know, we grew up in the the Northeast in the U.S. Uh, in this very similar sea of uh, unspoken values and pressures, that um, this was kind of the best and the highest and the right way to to develop and there was not uh, so much of an acknowledgement or much less an appreciation of say even the more mystical aspects of the jewish tradition or the more spiritual dimensions of the tradition it was the emphasis was more on um, family community uh, holidays, seasons, and cycles, and then uh, one's relationship to the world through values, value of um, service, generosity, uh, social social justice, um, and then also education uh, as a way of a betterment of oneself and society. These are some of the values that are kind of like the sea that I, you know, was swimming in growing up um, as a as a as a Jew in the Northeast in the seventies and eighties. Um, and it wasn't until I really started looking more closely at the sort of spiritual and mystical dimensions of what it is to be human that I recognize this absence, you know, this deep longing inside that's the other way around, right? That the longing kind of brought me to exploring these aspects. And then I started realizing like, Oh, this is part of, this is part of being human and like I've been hungry for this. And then 
you know, through through study and practice, you know, rediscovering those aspects of Judaism, say that had been um, uh, compartmentalized or some you know access had been diminished after the Holocaust, when so many of the mystical teachers um, were killed and the sort of traditions were went underground or were lost, um, but really finding for me in, in Buddhism a much more kind of accessible. Uh, practice and language, and in many ways, ironically, because it was so empirical and rational, it was like, oh, I don't have to believe anything. I can just sort of do this practice and observe my experience and see what's true for me. So, in some sense, it was this, this sort of Jewish values for rationality and uh, clear understanding and knowing that uh, attracted me to Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And then through that, I started to find a way to satisfy and connect with this deeper hunger for the mystery the mystery of life uh, for a sense of connection with something larger than myself all of these experiences of what we might call the sacred um, that can open up to us but as you pointed to when we started the the topic you know d- devotion is um, does it need to be limited to those realms that it's really about the quality of wholeheartedness we bring to anything, whether it's parenting or tending a garden uh, or our work or our, our spiritual practice. Yeah. Thanks for that history there. It's, it's really interesting and um, something I definitely resonate with, even if it's taken me a while, you know, to get over those hard edges and those, those right angles that I'm so used to and so much more comfortable with. The other thing I really like here is uh, this notion that the Buddha said that the primary value of ritual, and I'm quoting, is is symbolic. I remember at the IMS, Insight Meditation Society, Metta retreat that you were mm-hmm. one of the teachers at, just sort of bristling at all the bowing and stuff that was happening <laughs> when people would leave the hall. And it was just like, what is going on here? It's just a so performative it's such a show and it made me feel so embarrassed that even when i was feeling really um connected i would uh sneak a tiny little bow or maybe just wink at the statue (laughs) of the buddha instead of go up there and have everyone see me um you know yeah bow down but you know the idea i think the way you put it is very nice um you know, it's it's to offer gratitude for the teachings and respect for our own capacity for awakening. There's a way to do it and maintain, you know, the value that it has to yourself or to have integrity yeah. and not to yeah. be this kind of show. Right. And, and what's beautiful about that too, Josh, is, is like, you know, the, the actual, in, in a sense, it's like the Buddha statue is at a certain point actually becomes or can become irrelevant and it's the it's the act of bowing itself that could be anything it doesn't need to be bowing that becomes the embodiment of that gratitude and that respect you know it's like when we do anything with this quality of wholehearted love and reverence and attention um we 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 move beyond the the sense of self in that moment we just it's just like there's just the offering there's just the offering it's like um i talk a little bit about my dad at various points in the book um who, who passed away 
uh, earlier this year before the book came out. Um, one of the stories I don't tell in the book is just, just didn't make its way in there. Uh, about 10 years before he passed, uh, he had a health crisis. He was very sick. I had to check him into the hospital. He had been in the hospital for a few days. He hadn't yet been released to the uh, intensive care unit or the um, uh, sort of nursing facility. And he, ha he hadn't had a shave because he'd just been in the hospital bed. And he asked me, he said, you know, hey, or, you know, will you, will you get my razor from home or, you know, will you, I really want to shave. And uh, I got his razor and I got some, you know, hot water and a, a couple towels. And this is a very beautiful, intimate experience of, uh, of shaving my father. And this experience of devotion and love of being able to offer that to him that I cherish to this day, you know, it's just really touching in my heart. And um, when we do anything with this quality of, of wholeheartedness and completeness, it, it takes us to another, another place, another kind of experience that we can have in being human that's outside of time, that's outside of self. Uh, and it can be anything. It doesn't need to be bowing. It doesn't need to be a Buddha. It can be changing a diaper. You know, it can be uh, giving uh, a loved one a, a massage, a foot rub or something. It's, the, it's that quality of presence and the willingness to give ourselves to the moment completely. And then there's this beautiful letting go and a kind of transcendence that opens up that's possible in, in that moment. And, and I think that most of us know this. I think that we've had glimpses, tastes of this in, in different situations where we are, we are kind of effortlessly drawn in to, um, to the moment and to whatever it is uh, that we're doing. And I would say that that's an experience of devotion and that connects us to the sacred, however we think about it. And I think this is a real need that we have and one that um, I encourage people to explore and reclaim so that we, hmm. we can be nourished by it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on that. I'm on that uh, train. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling enthusiastic too, to encourage, encourage folks, especially folks that are very secular and uh, sort of mostly glued to what can be felt or touched. Um, Cause I'm as skeptical as they come, but you know what, there's <laughs> more to life than, the prefrontal cortex. Um, and that was a very nice story that you shared. Reminded me of some very uh, uh, precious moments I, I spent with my dad, who also passed in the last couple of years. Mm. Um, well, Oren, there's more questions I could ask, but you're already talking for more than an hour, and I think that's probably plenty for now. Um, is there anything I haven't asked that feels important or is there anything you wanted to highlight about your work or what you're doing um, now or in the future that you'd like to share? Oh, thanks, Josh. Um, I, I could just mention, I mean, just kind of practically speaking, uh, we kind of dove so deep into some of the qualities, you know, just kind of zooming out, you know, the, the book um, is, it's meant to meet you where you're at. 
You know, the, you go to the chapter that speaks to what it is that you're needing or wanting to cultivate. And the chapters are short. There are 26 of them. So if you take two weeks for every chapter, you've got a whole year of learning and exploration. Um, and it's really just based on this fact that we're always practicing something. We're always getting better at something. <laughs> so so why not get better at these beautiful uh, transformative skills um, that can bring more beauty and meaning to our own lives um, and enrich our world and our communities. So yeah, folks want to uh, find out more about my work or the book, my website, Orin J. Sofer, uh, it's probably the best place, orinjsofer.com. And the book is available um, in bookstores everywhere. Yeah, thanks, Orin. I feel like you, do you write these books for book clubs? Because I feel like they really lend themselves <laughs> to that way of chopping them up. Uh, yes and no. The first one was, was not, I did not have that in mind, but this one I definitely did have in mind, like, let's get together and practice this stuff together. And, and it is my intention, um, not, not next year, but the year after in 2025 to do some, uh, some online groups and clubs with, uh, with the book. So I look forward to doing that. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much for, yeah, for writing the book and coming back on the podcast. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and I hope to see you uh, somewhere soon. Ditto. Thanks for having me.